Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. College, a time for young people to learn and grow into independent adults. It's also a time many experiment and often binge drink. Will this drinking culture ever change? We'll talk to administrators at two universities about excessive drinking on college campuses. That's coming up. Now, alcohol is a common backdrop to a big problem at colleges and universities. Sexual assaults on campuses have gotten more attention in recent years. Coming up, we'll find out whether Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's rollback of guidelines from the Obama era on how higher ed institutions should handle reports of sexual violence has it led to recent changes on campuses. We'll find out. First, the alleged rape of a former Yale student is in the focus is the focus rather of a criminal trial in New Haven Superior Court. These kinds of cases rarely make it to court. We wanted to know why. Joining us by phone to tell us more is Tyler Kincaid, national reporter at BuzzFeed, covering sexual harassment and assault, and he's covered Title IX and sexual assault on college campuses for many years. Tyler, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. I wanted just to recap for our listeners who uh, may not be following this case out of New Haven, uh, this Yale alleged rape case involving a former Yale student accused of raping another student, his classmate, in 2015. They were both acquaintances. Um, In testimony, uh, this student accompanied the victim to a concert. Alleged victim became severely intoxicated over the course of a night. Um, The victim says that the student took her back to her room and allegedly raped her. And she alleges she was too intoxicated to consent, was not able to stop him. Uh, The defense claims this was consensual sex. Uh, The victim reported the incident to police within the days of the uh, incident. And the student was arrested, suspended shortly afterwards in November 2015. It's now uh, March 2018, and this case is before uh, a jury. Tyler, you've covered uh, campus sexual assault cases uh, for many years. Is this type of case uh, very familiar or common? Yeah, the circumstances of the case are are certainly familiar. I mean, the, all the elements are, you know, pretty synonymous with a lot of what a lot of the different types of cases I've covered. Uh, and typically, most of the cases I've covered, it's usually looking at how the process worked with the university, not necessarily what went to trial, because most of these don't go to trial. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Uh, but I mean, the whole idea that they were two people who knew each other, who you know, they they went out together um, as friends, at least. And then, you know, there was drinking involved and that the actual uh, alleged assault happened after a lot of drinks were consumed. Uh, you know, that's all pretty typical. And, you know, the other typical thing is that there were no witnesses. I mean, this is how these cases play out is they are often two people alone in a room, no witnesses. Um, and, you know, so this has gone to trial, which is different. Um, because some of the biggest, uh, most high-profile campus rape cases we've seen result in criminal charges are examples like Brock Turner mm-hmm. at Stanford, uh, the Vanderbilt football players. But in those, you know, Brock Turner, there were witnesses who interrupted the assault. And then the Vanderbilt uh, football case with four players, you know, there was surveillance footage showing the men carrying a passed-out woman through the dorm hallway. So this is different in that 
there's not those kind of elements that I think from the get-go present a really strong case for the prosecution. Um, this is just, you know, sadly, just much more typical of what often happens when these cases are brought to either colleges or to police. Why uh, do so few prosecutors take up these cases if it goes to that uh, to this uh, that point in time where it's not just adjudicated on on a college campus, it's actually headed to a criminal courtroom? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a 2012 peer review uh, article that concluded that there are some perverse incentives for prosecutors and district attorneys to only take cases that they think that will be an easy win. And so that prevents them from taking cases that would be more difficult. And if we look, look at that through a practical lens, what that means is even if we know that a lot of the behavior involved here, uh, both by the alleged perpetrator and alleged victim, is typical of uh, rape instances, uh, you know, according to all the research, you've got to convince a jury within, you know, sometimes a matter of a week, two weeks, that and catch them up on everything that people have studied for, for decades. So a lot of times what they're looking at is really more how does this fit into what the popular narrative is of what a quote-unquote, you know, perfect rape would look like. And, you know, juries are not made up of experts. They're made up of just average people who probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about these situations. So they're going to come in with their biases that are not because they are bad people. It's the biases that they're bringing are because they're just reflections of the broader society. So, so a jury may think case, that a jury may think that a rape happens between strangers, not acquaintances. Exactly. You know, the person uh, jumping out of the bushes or around a dark corner. And, I, you know, we're seeing some of that in this case where the defense has pushed back on the uh, alleged victim and, you know, questioned her about her drinking and, and why she wore a revealing outfit on that night, um, pointing out her mini skirt that she was wearing. And this was Halloween. So they asked her, you know, you could have worn a long ball gown and gone as Cinderella, which is suggesting, you know, you were showing off a lot of your body. And that's, you know, really the unfortunate reality of what often comes up in these kind of cases. And from the perspective of victims, disincentives to report to the police or to pursue charges? Yeah, I mean, like victims, you know, I've talked to them for years and they don't all want the same thing. It's not that every woman or man um, that's assaulted immediately turns around and says, well, we better, I want this guy locked up. And, you know, if they decide that at all, it may not come for months. Um, there's a lot of trauma involved, so they may still be processing it. Um, and then when they do bring it to police, um, again, if they do, with, which the research shows uh, nine out of 10 cases never make it to police, um, they also aren't represented by the prosecutor. I mean, we have this idea, I think, that a lot of people think prosecutors are sort of like the lawyers for the victim in any crime. That's not true. They're the lawyers for the state. So, you know, if a lawyer thinks, if they think that they don't really have a winnable case, um, or for whatever reason decided they shouldn't take it to trial, you know, and the victim really wants it to go to trial, it's sort of tough luck a lot of times. The timeline for these cases also appears very slow. I mentioned that this incident at Yale happened in 2015. It's now 2018. Uh, both uh, students involved, uh, one was uh, suspended. The male student, the other student, um, no longer lives in the state of Connecticut. That can be tricky, too, that people want to relive this happening years later in, in front of a jury. 
Yeah, I mean, and there we get into some of the practical things. I mean, let's say this happens right before spring break or summer break, and then, you know, someone goes off, um, you know, home to out of state just for the summer. Um, that alone could be a problematic for police investigating. Um, and then I think also the timeline we're looking at, this is an incident that happened in October 2015. It's now, as at the top of the show, it's now the beginning of 2018. So two and a half years. And so from the practical, I mean, I think that also helps explain a little bit of why colleges get involved is because, you know, colleges couldn't just say, oh, well, that's too bad that that assault occurred. We'll wait, you know, two and a half to, you know, sometimes it might take as long as four years or so before we have a result in the criminal process, and then we'll decide what to do. Um, just So just from the practical element, that's why way back in uh, November of 2015 is when um, I believe Yale made the decision to suspend uh, Mr. Khan in this particular case. This is where we live today. We're talking about sexual assaults on campus. Um, as we're hearing from national reporter at BuzzFeed, Tyler Kincaid, really do these cases make it to a criminal court? One such case is being heard in New Haven Superior Court over the last week, a former Yale student on trial charged with assaulting his classmate in 2015. Now, colleges and universities must respond to harassment and assault complaints under Title IX obligations. For more on this, we're joined now by Diane Rosenfeld, lecturer in law and women's studies, also director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard. Law School. She's joining us today from a studio at Harvard Business School. Uh, Diane, welcome to the conversation. Thanks. Good morning, Lucy. Let's learn a little bit more about uh, this process. So on college campuses, there's a process to adjudicate when there are uh, complaints filed, assault complaints, and then through the justice system, criminal justice system. But under Title IX, what is required um, to happen on college campuses? Well, it's really important at the outset to note that these are distinct but kind of overlapping sometimes systems. So on a college campus, if your school receives any funding from the federal government, which almost all schools do, then you're required to um, respond in a prompt and equitable way to eliminate any hostile environment on campus. So Title IX is your guarantee to be to an educational opportunity that is free of sex discrimination. And sexual assault is the most extreme form of sexual harassment. So that's why schools are under an obligation to investigate promptly, to remediate, to um, create an effective response that eliminates the harassment. And this all means that a school has to investigate and they have to respond appropriately to any claims of sexual misconduct or sexual assault. And Title IX also requires schools to improve programs to protect students and deal effectively with complaints. Uh, that started to be more uh, brought into attention in 2011 after the Obama administration got involved? Yes, that's exactly right, Lucy. So these statutes were on the books for years and years, but the Obama administration was the very first to take seriously at all sexual assault on campus and to address how tragically it can affect and derail um, a victim survivor's educational experience. So at the heart of Title IX is the promise of equal access to educational opportunities. And being subject to sexual misconduct can severely impact one's ability to access such opportunities in any way at all, and certainly in an equal way. So the Obama, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Diane. The Obama administration 
when they appointed Ruslan Ali to be the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education, that's the enforcement arm of Title IX, she was the first secretary to really look at the power of OCR to enforce the civil rights of students. And then President Obama took this very, very seriously and in 2014 established a White House task force on protecting students from sexual assault on campus. Uh, we were talking about the first, the 2011 guidance, and then you mentioned in 2014. Uh, there's also, uh, I guess, a, a standard that colleges use uh, when they're adjudicating this uh, in their process uh, that's different from what you would see in a criminal trial. Can you d- describe the, the, two, um, the two standards? Of course. So as I was saying, on a college campus, you have a civil right. And in the criminal justice system, it's a completely different standard because if you're accused of a crime in the criminal justice system, you stand to lose your liberty. And that's why you have due process protections and the standard of evidence is the highest because we take loss of liberty quite seriously in our society as we should. On a college campus, in a civil rights context, the standard had always been preponderance of the evidence. That's the legal standard for a civil rights case. And you don't stand to lose your liberty. Um, The worst that can happen to an accused, for example, is that he has to transfer to another school after being kicked out for sexual misconduct or sexual assault. Uh, With us also is Tyler Kincaid, national reporter at BuzzFeed, who's covered sexual harassment and assault uh, on college campuses for many years. Uh, With these guidelines that came from the Obama era, Tyler, how big of a change did we we see across college campuses? And I know coming up we're going to be talking about uh, some of the the rollbacks under Secretary DeVos. But first, just the impact that um, these guidelines from the Obama administration had on college campuses. Yeah, so... I I mean, like Diane was saying, this has been something that colleges addressed for years. Um, The Supreme Court back in the 90s um, clarified that it's a Title IX violation if a student uh, commits some sort of form of sexual misconduct or harassment on another student. Um, But what the the 2011 guidelines did was they they established some more specific uh, rules for what the federal government expected colleges to do. And a lot of them started retooling their policies. And what I've heard from a lot of administrators is that as they retooled it, you know, they make announcements. We've updated our policy. And also the Obama administration publicizing this um, really kind of announced to students, hey, this is an option or this is a right that you have. And students kind of took that and ran with it and started, you know, engaging in a lot more activism, especially starting in 2013, uh, to highlight what they morally expected schools to do. So, I mean, the, the, one of the misconceptions, I think, is that these uh, regulations from the government uh, set out that colleges must, you know, expel students or that they uh, need to expel them right away. And the federal government, including under the Obama administration, never took any stance on what colleges must do at the end of any sort of adjudicative process in a sexual assault case. Um, and I mean, even California proposed a requiring a, essentially a mandatory minimum of a two-year suspension for any student found responsible for violating a sexual assault policy, and that was vetoed. Um, so this is very much something decided on case-by-case basis, but it's also, um, 
you know, students have pressured schools to take harder stances. And in Yale's case, for example, uh, it was back in 2013 that Yale released a report disclosing that they'd found, uh, I think, believe it was six students had committed um, non-consensual sex. That was the term that Yale used at the time in the report. Uh, but only one of them received a suspension, and that that was a suspension for just one semester. So things are changing, and you can both go back and look at the reports that Yale has put out that shows that more students who they find have committed a sexual assault or you know non-consensual sexual intercourse, uh, the term has kind of fluctuated there, um, they're receiving harsher penalties. But that's really more of a result of student and alumni pressure than anything by the federal government, in my opinion. This is where we live today. We're looking at uh, sexual assaults on college campuses. On the phone with us, Tyler Kincaid, national reporter at BuzzFeed, and Diane Rosenfeld joining us from a studio at Harvard. She's a lecturer in law and women's studies, also director of the gender violence program at Harvard Law School. Uh, Diane, can you speak to uh, some of what the critics of these Obama-era guidelines uh, that that worry that um, after those guidelines were uh, issued, that um, these guidelines were unfair to the accused? Sure. And may I clarify, I'm a lecturer at the law school, although I have taught in women's studies in the past. Okay. So I think that the concern of the critics of the policy is is fear that something uh, will happen to the accused that wouldn't have happened without enforcement from the federal government. And the problem is that they're conflating the criminal justice standard with a civil rights procedure at school. And of course, the same behavior can give rise to a, a civil rights violation and a criminal justice and a crime, basically. Um, but they are two different systems and they have to work together at times. But it's really critical to remember that you have civil rights at school. And because of the criminal justices, justice system's failure to ever prosecute or take seriously acquaintance rape situations like we have um, so often at schools. As Tyler was pointing out, um, schools really do have the ability and the responsibility to remediate rape on campus. So schools have the responsibility to prevent, respond, and resolve cases of sexual assault on campus. And schools are very good about saying that they'll do prevention programs. Um, And where I think we need a lot of conversation and rethinking is about how a school can respond um, to a claim of sexual assault and how they resolve it. So starting with resolution, they, they can do many things, as Tyler was pointing out, besides kicking somebody out of school. But the federal requirement is that the resolution has to be effective at remediating the hostile environment. And that means that if the the victim who reported doesn't feel safe going to class and can't be on campus with the offender, that maybe they suspend the offender after they find him responsible until she graduates, for example. Um, Schools can respond much more nimbly and effectively and in a more tailored fashion than does the criminal justice system. Um, So you look at the timeline of these. um, Schools have to respond in a prompt fashion, which the Obama administration interpreted to be within 60 days. Um, 
the current administration has has rolled that back, but it is really important to respond promptly because when you're at school, you're in a closed environment and the academic calendar creates a time warp where promptness is so much more important because of of performance requirements such as midterms and finals. And the schools actually have been building the capacity to respond better to these cases. And I, I think that the work has been planted in the schools now, and even with the rollback that we're seeing um, in this administration, I think that schools are much more aware of their um, responsibilities and more interested and willing to treat their students more fairly on this issue. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about campus sexual assaults. If you're a college student and you want to talk a little bit about the process on your college campus, you can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. I want to thank Tyler Kincaid for joining us, a national reporter at BuzzFeed. Tyler, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Coming up, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Diane Rosenfeld, and we're also going to hear from UConn's Title IX coordinator to find out whether Secretary DeVos's rollback of guidelines has impacted how this university handles sexual assault complaints. We want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about sexual assaults on U.S. college and university campuses. Our guest is from Harvard Business School, joining us from the studio there. It's Diane Rosenfeld, lecturer in law and director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard Law School. And joining us now in studio is Elizabeth Conklin. She's Title IX coordinator at the University of Connecticut. Now, if you're a college student, we'd like to hear from you, too. Um, how is your college or university addressing this problem of sexual assaults? And we'd want to hear um, about what kind of uh, training and prevention uh, that this your college or university gives you when you enter um, as a freshman. Again, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Elizabeth, welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned you're the Title IX coordinator for UConn. We learned about Title IX uh, last uh, segment um, from Diane. So what does the Title IX system look like when we're talking about sexual assaults? Yeah, I think that's an important question. We um, really think about Title IX in, in I think, um, in, in two major ways, and, and they interrelate. But we're thinking first and foremost about a system that prevents these incidents from occurring in the first place. So a system that helps to ensure that everyone on a college campus, regardless of gender identity, has an educational experience that is free from all forms of harassment and discrimination based on sex. Um, so we're looking at a lot of work with both students and employees around helping them to understand the standards and conduct expectations that are in place um, and and really thinking about preventing these incidents from happening in the first place. And there's a lot that goes into that. Um, you know, a big piece of that for students in particular is bystander intervention, which is something that is really, um, I think, an important part of the field right now. But we're also thinking about response to any incidents that do occur so making sure that we are providing resources and support to any students that are impacted by incidents of sexual violence, um, including intimate partner violence, stalking, and sexual assault. 
Um, and I think the two work hand in hand together. They're a little different, certainly. Um, but the response includes providing resources and support and then also, as the first part of the show was speaking to, conducting investigations where appropriate. So if a student has been assaulted, uh, what is the first step they would take and do they know where to go? Yeah, so I think the entire, one of the major pieces of the prevention program and education program is making sure that you're doing everything you can so that you feel relatively confident that the students on your campus would answer yes to that question. And I think one of the pieces of that is really triaging your campus to assess where do students go um, and making sure that the places that students would naturally go to report these things are places where there's been a lot of training and guidance given. We know on most campuses that are residential RAs, resident assistants, are a very important first responder. Incidents tend to happen either in the residence halls or students who live there return there after an incident. And so we know that RAs are um, certainly a place where uh, responses are made. But faculty advisors, um, coaches, student organization advisors, um, a close trusted faculty member, there are a lot of people who can be those that would respond to these incidents, in addition certainly to more formal offices like student conduct or the Title IX coordinator's office. Um, I think that's partly what drives so many universities, including UConn, to have university policies that deem that virtually all employees are considered responsible employees, meaning that if an incident is disclosed to them, they report to a central office. At UConn, that would be my office. Uh, now, I mentioned uh, what we were talking with Diane Rosenfeld uh, last segment, and uh, we wanted to hear a little bit more about any kind of impact that uh, this rescission of guidelines uh, by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos in September that she announced. Uh, have, has that trickled down at all? And what kind of impact does that have at UConn? Yeah, so we are, um, I think, certainly still living under the new administration and guidelines along with the rest of the country. I can say that for us in Connecticut and at UConn, um, the, the new guidance and the rescission of the 2011 and 2014 guidance hasn't really had much of an impact, not certainly with respect to the way that we're handling matters, our policies, our procedures. Since 2011 and, and for many years before, schools have been working to really, I think, enhance their response to these issues, spending an enormous amount of time and thought and resources. Um, UConn's not alone in that. And so I think that schools have gotten to a place, many of them, where they feel really good about what they've done. They've included students in those focus groups on materials and policies and processes. So there was nothing in the 2017 um, guidance from the Department of Education that necessarily required immediate changes. And I, I don't think that they were necessarily looking for that, although certainly from my perspective, the focus was really on ensuring that the processes were providing for a due and fair, equitable process for respondents, those accused. Um, the new guidance also relaxed the 60-day requirement that was mentioned earlier. So it gave schools the room, if it's reasonable, for an investigation process to take longer than that time frame. Um, those are two areas of concentration that I think have had an impact. However, um, in Connecticut, it's a little bit different because we have a state law um, 10A-55M, uh, for anyone who's reading statutes out there. And that requires certain things um, by law under our state statute that the 2011 guidance had, had suggested, including a preponderance of the evidence standard, certain training for campus members and investigators. So I think 
what you'd hear from most of my colleagues around the state of Connecticut is that it's largely business as it was before. As I mentioned, Diane Rosenfeld is with us, a lecturer in law and director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard Law School. Diane, you wrote uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, condemning uh, this uh, uh, this rescission by Secretary DeVos in September. Um, why do you think uh, what she has proposed, which I understand is uh, raising the standard of proof for accusers to clear and convincing evidence from this preponderance of evidence, also allowing cases to be settled in mediation sessions between the accuser and the accused and dropping time frames for completing investigations. Walk us through your concerns. Thanks. Well, first of all, she, Secretary DeVos, um, rescinded the guideline and then produced an interim guidance, which doesn't actually completely scrap the preponderance of the evidence standard, nor does it require schools to increase their standard to clear and convincing evidence. One of my major concerns with the secretary's approach to this is that when she announced that she needed to change policies on this, she pointed to many cases where schools had gotten it wrong. But in each of those cases, what she talked about was in itself a Title IX violation. So my concern was that it's not a problem with the law of Title IX, it's a problem with the implementation. And as the person in charge of the Department of Education, I see it as her role to help schools achieve the goals of Title IX, not to just scrap it and then create the kind of confusion that she has sown in this area. So, But really importantly, that was an interim guideline, and she is, she's said that she's going to open up this issue for notice and comment. So I want to tell the listeners that they should be in touch with the Department of Education and feel free and encouraged to submit their comments on this. And we, of course, want procedural fairness for all students. And when you don't have that, one side is going to suffer. Possibly both sides will suffer. What the 2011 guidance did was to increase rights of all students, including the accused, and just make everything equal. So for example, on appeals, if um, one side has the right to appeal, then both sides have the right to appeal. And one area of concern for me is how um, the secretary has specifically said that only the accused has the right to appeal. Um, And I wanted to compliment quickly what Elizabeth is doing at UConn. The focus on prevention and education is so incredibly important. And part of that has to be educating students about prevention, but also about where to go and what resources are available. And those are really important because the kinds of accommodations that you can get as a student that will help you stay in school are things that a lot of students really don't know about. They don't know that they can have class changes. They don't know that they can take classes online, possibly, um, and that the school has to do whatever they can to help that person stay in school. And, And that can really make the difference in preserving somebody's access to educational opportunities. Diane, um, the the bystander program that Elizabeth mentioned, is that very common across the country? The bystander intervention is something that schools are definitely looking at, and it's also required as part of the Campus Save Act, which was part of the Violence Against Women Act amendments passed and signed into law in 2013. So bystander intervention and safe ways of intervening 
um, are programs that schools have to provide. And um, I think that there's so much student involvement, student activism on this that that will prevent the backsliding that would otherwise occur from uh, a rescission of the guidelines and a step back from enforcement by OCR. Although I should add that they just recently found Berkeley to be out of compliance, and that's a promising development. This is where we live today. We're looking at the problem of campus sexual assaults, also talking about ways uh, to prevent violence on campuses. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Diane Rosenfeld joining us um, from Harvard and also in studio with me, Elizabeth Conklin, Title IX coordinator at UConn. Uh, Joining the conversation now is Anna McNeil calling from New Haven. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I understand that you're a student at Yale, and tell us about uh, the dynamic on campus and how uh, you've gotten involved to try to change the culture there. Great. Um, Yeah, so I'm a sophomore at Yale, um, and I am a co-director of a student group called Engender, um, and we've kind of in the past year formed to uh, draw attention to the negative effects of fraternity culture in particular and how we see those as directly... um, uh, perpetuating this culture of sexual violence and disrespect at Yale. Um, so we've spent the last year rushing Yale fraternities and um, and kind of drawing to the administration's attention that you know the promise they're making to students that they have uh, college experience free from sexual discrimination is in reality not the case um, because women uh, have such negative experiences with fraternity culture and we see that problem as being directly tied uh, to fraternities all male membership um, and we believe that if women could be granted meaningful access to those spaces um, they would be less hostile. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I fall on the issue. Um, Sexual assault is obviously a much more pervasive problem, um, but we see it as, you know, a form of male entitlement in a lot of ways, uh, this culture, and and we think it's uh, intimately tied to um, the culture that's perpetuated by fraternities at Yale. And, uh, Anna, before I get reaction from our guests, what has been the response uh, to you and other students trying to rush these fraternities? Um, On campus, it's been very divided. Uh, Unfortunately, most fraternity members are not willing to speak with us or to negotiate terms of this rush. Um, Only one fraternity did allow us to rush this year. Um, So I'd say there's a lot of tension between students, although many, many women students are very much on our side in this issue. Um, And then from the administration, um, they've kind of tended to... uh, ignore our efforts um, and kind of have limited communication with us quite significantly. Um, but, uh, you know, it's looking like with allegations that have come out recently against Deke fraternity specifically at Yale, um, their policy may change on that. Uh, but, you know, it shouldn't have to take something as atrocious as, you know, a mass reporting of sexual harassment for them to take action. Anna, thank you for your call. I wanted to get reaction from Diane Rosenfeld, again, director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard Law School. I understand you represented um, some, uh, we know that frats at Yale have a long history of sexual assault issues. You represented some women back in 2011 about one particular fraternity, Diane. Right. So thanks for your call, Anna, and thanks so much for your work. And it's a great group, and uh, I think it's very promising what you're trying to do. Um, It's true, I did um, represent not just um, women, but uh, 16 students of all different genders. And it was in response to the Deke fraternity in 2010, chanting at night outside the freshman girls' dorms, no means yes, yes means anal. Mm -hmm. 
over and over in a militaristic way. And I was horrified when I heard about this and then just started investigating on my own informally to see if there was a hostile environment at Yale and if students were experiencing that as something that was uh, limiting their civil right to equal access to educational opportunity, which it was. And we, I helped the students file a federal civil rights complaint with the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education, which was resolved when Yale changed significantly its procedures. And I think that they have made a lot of progress and they're still a ways to go. Um, I, I, again, encourage Anna's work. I think it's going to lead in the right direction. And I wanted to offer a way of understanding this in the in the spirit of prevention and education. So I was working on a fraternity rape case, and I was talking to my colleague, and I said, you know, this isn't really stranger rape because this guy got her completely drunk and then raped her, but he, he wasn't a stranger, but he wasn't really an acquaintance because the acquaintance was just made for the purpose of grooming her and making her vulnerable, as we see in many fraternity party situations where the guys are, you know, they they pick out somebody and they make sure that she has a lot to drink and then they say, well, let's get let's go someplace where we can talk because it's just too loud in this party room. And they take her upstairs to a designated room and um, sexually assault her. I said, what it really is, is target rape. And I really like this term because it takes the attention away from the victim-offender relationship and puts it more on the person who's perpetrating this behavior. And I think that the current Yale case in criminal court right now is a pretty solid example of target rape. And I'm not convicting him in the media, and I haven't heard all the evidence, absolutely not. But from what the papers are saying about just the outline of the case, that she was extremely drunk, that he was part of this, that he had been targeting her for a while, expressing his interest in her. She was not interested in him. And then the way that he isolated her from her friends and said that he was going to take care of her. And then as far as I can tell, his defense is that she vomited so much that night that then she was sober is completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So the behavior just overall of targeting somebody, getting her so inebriated, using alcohol as a weapon. And I think that that's where we need a lot of education is about responsible drinking, but also how men, especially men in exclusive male spaces, as Anna was referring to, say, in you know, at Harvard, it's final clubs and fraternities, and at Yale, it's fraternities and their secret societies. Um, but how they how they use this behavior, this is like normal social behavior, like we saw in Brock Turner's case. He said, well, this is just, you know, what, what happens every weekend. And we have to really change the culture to produce one in which sexual respect replaces what we have now. I want to go back to our in-studio guest, Elizabeth Conklin, your Title IX coordinator at UConn. As you hear this conversation about changing the culture, how are you doing that specifically at UConn, where we're talking about what is consent and how to um, protect yourself from certain situations that seem to be coming more commonplace on campuses? Yeah, so I think that involving the students really directly in that conversation and those efforts is, is critically important. Um, you know, with fraternities and sororities and other student organizations, I think not just Greek organizations, 
it's important to work directly with the students and student leadership structure there. So one of the things we've been very much focusing on the last couple of years is to work within the context of student groups with student leaders, involving student leaders as um, trainers in our Protect Our Pack Bystander Intervention Program, seeking folks who are in positions where they hold what's known as social status on campus, involving student government. I think every campus looks a little different. So the groups or organizations that might have certain pull on one campus might be different than on another. And that's where really knowing your campus and tailoring your efforts around the students who hold those leadership positions is so important. You know, in an, in, in, in a perfect world, you are um, creating allies within student organizations and student leaders, including fraternities, to say, this doesn't happen at UConn. We protect our pack. Huskies support each other. Um, we know what to do if something looks like it's not okay. Um, we have been given skills to stop a situation, to report a situation. Um, and so I think that what we do every day is work to provide that kind of education um, you know, and, and I don't think it's an overnight thing. It's a little outside the scope of today's broadcast, but I think one of the challenges is in some cases we are writing on a blank piece of paper in that students may not have gotten much before coming to college. Mm-hmm. So one of my biggest interests is looking at what are we doing K through 12? There are some requirements in Connecticut for bystander and sexual assault education, but students coming to college for the first time are not infrequently saying, My freshman orientation program was the first time in my life that there has been an honest conversation about these topics. I think that's a big problem. So we have to recognize where students are at and meet them there. I think this is going to take years. Um, But I think that um, it's important to involve the students in the organizations where there might be higher levels of activity um, and not just sort of cast them aside. I think most of the people there want to do the right thing, and we need to empower them. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we got to hit to break, but I want to thank Diane Rosenfeld, lecturer in law and director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard Law School. Thank you for joining us today for part of the conversation, Diane. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. We've been talking about changing college culture. That includes the use of alcohol. How does that play a role in violence on campuses? We're going to talk about that after the break. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Where We Live's Making Her Stories series is back, highlighting the journeys of three prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Join me tomorrow, March 6th at 6 p.m. for a conversation with Teresa Younger, president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. Space is limited. You can learn more at wmpr.org slash makingherstory. Now, today we mentioned uh, we're talking about sexual assaults on campuses, and we mentioned a statistic earlier that's disturbing. One in five women report being sexually assaulted while in college. Many of these incidents involve alcohol. So how should excessive drinking be addressed overall on campuses? Joining our conversation now is Dr. Antonio Abbey, Antonia Abbey, rather, professor of psychology at Wayne State University. She's been researching alcohol's role in sexual assault and the factors that play into male sexual aggression for the past two decades. Dr. Abbey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. We just have a short time, and I know you've done a lot of research on this over the past 20 years, but tell us about your research and how you've looked at this question of alcohol and sexual violence. Well, myself and other researchers, we 
often focus on both the pharmacology of alcohol's effects as well as the kind of psychological effects that it has. So when you think of pharmacology, we all know that alcohol affects cognitive processing. I don't think we always um, accept how much it affects us as individuals. We often think we can handle it, we can tolerate it, but even small doses of alcohol start to affect some of the higher order cognitive functions in the brain so that people don't make decisions as well. They don't take in information and recognize when the situation changes and their response has to change. They don't have do a good job of um, you know, kind of seeing cues. That's why people talk about alcohol myopia, you know, that idea of having, you know, blinders on and not noticing what's going on. So in no way does this excuse a perpetrator's behavior. Someone should know the effects of alcohol on their body, but it is somewhat understandable that once someone has decided they want to pursue sex with someone, when they're intoxicated, they tend to have then this single-minded focus that they keep pushing. And again, not saying there's anything right about that, just that we can see how alcohol can make it more likely that someone will be comfortable um, forcing sex in a situation. And then when we talk about the psychological aspect of it, I think we can all you know, um, shut our eyes and think of many instances in which alcohol and sex are combined in our society. You know, we tend to see people drinking in movies and books and porn and all kinds of situations where we learn to connect alcohol and sex in our minds. And there's a lot of research that once we have these kind of unconscious, implicit associations, they subtly affect how we interpret a situation. So if someone's looking for sex with someone and they see that person is drinking at this party, at the bar, wherever they're at, the elk, um, that perception tends to make them think this person wants to have sex with them a little bit more than they would have otherwise. Again, no way acknowledging that that would make that behavior acceptable, but saying that these kind of unconsciously affect sometimes how someone perceives the situation and what they expect. And, of course, we know that victims often get blamed afterwards if they were drinking because other people are kind of making these attributions, again, inappropriately about the victim after she drank. So that's a quick kind of overview of um, the way we look at how these psychological and physiological factors come together and unfortunately make it easier for someone to be sexually assaulted and feel like what they did was okay, acceptable. So, Dr. Abby, from your research, how should colleges and universities be talking about the use of alcohol and, and looking at this larger problem of sexual assault on campus? You mentioned the discussions of alcohol and assault. You know, sometimes uh, there are those who see that as victim blaming. But, you know, how do we talk about this in a responsible way where it's not necessarily about blame, but how to prevent this from happening? Well, there are definitely challenges, yes. Um, I think that in some ways I wish that we could um, focus more on responsible drinking in general on college campuses. Their sexual assault is a very negative outcome that I care most about, but certainly there are lots of other bad things that happen when people drink heavily. Um, healthy college students die every year on campuses, right, because of um, amount of alcohol that they consumed and either an accident or an injury or alcohol poisoning. So the ability to enjoy oneself when they're drinking, to have fun, to let it out if one wants, but somehow still drink at a responsible level, you know, the fact that we somehow have, are equating, you know, this need to kind of um, unwind after the stress of the hard work of college to being totally intoxicated just as something that I hope we could look at. And I did hear a little bit of the earlier conversation, and I agree with the um, 
um, individual who was saying we need to really then involve students in this process. So I'm not really the person to tell students they should drink less and necessarily have them listen to me. But most students, if you get them talking, will um, recognize there are you know situations or times when the alcohol gets out of control. So thinking about um, plans, programs they would like to have, things that they would find useful. Um, help them kind of have fun without having to drink to that level or, you know, feel like they can only have sex when they're that intoxicated. Uh, this might be a question for another show when we talk about binge drinking. Again, this culture, uh, this this idea that when you go to college, it's time uh, to party. I wanted to go back to Elizabeth Conklin, who's the Title IX coordinator at UConn. I understand that discussion has happened um, through the years about whether the legal age to drink in this country plays a part in this excessive uh, binge drinking when people go to college. So... I think that's a really important question. Um, and, you know, I don't have an official university position on this. Um, so let me make that clear. But speaking as someone who works in this area and was, in fact, a college student um, and speaking with some of our exchange students who come from countries where the drinking age is lower, um, I, I think that there is there are very few people in this field who would say the fact that the drinking age is what it is is not having an impact on this issue on campus. Um, you know, I think it the question of lowering the legal drinking age and changing the culture around drinking in the United States is one that is worth continuing to have. There's a lot of research on that. It's a bit outside the scope of my expertise, but I don't think anyone doing the work that I do on campus can turn their eyes away from the impact that alcohol is having on these issues and the impact that the 21-year-old drinking age has on those issues. So looking at uh, the issues of excessive drinking and sexual assaults from a public health perspective might change people's uh, viewpoints on how to prevent these issues from you know, hurting them or hurting ones that they love. Yes. I want to thank Elizabeth Conklin, Title IX Coordinator at UConn. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Also, Dr. Antonia Abbey, Professor of Psychology at Wayne State University, who's been researching alcohol's role in sexual assaults. Dr. Abbey, thank you for joining us. We know the time was short, but we appreciate your perspective. No problem. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to WNPR intern Julius Brown and technical producer Kion Wolf.